You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, I'm always grateful after a brief time away to be reminded coming back that when any of our pastors have to be away, our church remains in good, caring hands. That's a great thing for pastors to know because it's important that we're cared for, that our souls are shepherded in season and out of season, even when some of us are away. Let me invite you to turn with me in our text for this morning, which is Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. I recently read that Stephen King, the author of countless horror stories and thrillers, was recounting once some of his early experiences with Christians in his family and around who I think probably shared the gospel with him in some ways. And they talked about Jesus and the way that Jesus would walk with people in their most difficult times. And yet, even in that, he just could not see himself as the kind of person that Jesus would walk to. And he said something very interesting from his perspective. He talked about uh, Jesus being on the cross and the images that he had seen. And he said, the pain appeared to have driven him out of his mind. You could see it on his face. If that guy came back, he probably wouldn't be in a saving mood. I thought that was such an interesting quote to hear from Stephen King, his perspective on Jesus and the idea that Jesus would go through what he went through in suffering in this sinful world, even to give his life dying on a cross in ultimate anguish, which we know is not only physical but spiritual, and then to conclude that if that person hanging on the cross were me, and I came back, I certainly wouldn't be in a saving mood. That was a reminder to me when I read that quote of just how important it is that you and I keep a clear view on the overwhelming grace and otherworldliness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it's true that if you or I, as fallen people, were to suffer what Jesus suffered on behalf of enemies and were to be treated and uh, mistreated and maligned and slandered and spit upon and murdered, and then we came back, I suppose none of us would be in a saving mood. We would be in a judging mood. We would be in a condemning mood. But that's what's so amazing about Jesus is that he most certainly came back and came back in a saving mood. You know, I think that we never must become accustomed to the marvel of the saving grace of Jesus. We must never, which is something I tend to do, we must fight against it, that we would never take it for granted, that we would never underestimate him or underestimate his grace or his the reach of his saving arm or underestimate the way that he walks even with, with people like us who are fraught with sin and suffering and trials and troubles and tribulations and temptations and all the rest. Because when you or I underestimate Christ and his power to save or his power to keep, 
or we underestimate his power to change us, it's in that moment that we are in real trouble. But this is the reality that I have found in my life and the lives of many other Christians, that no matter who you are or what you're doing, even in the chair that you're sitting in now, you are underestimating Jesus. And so am I. That's why the aim, one of the aims in our reading and preaching of scripture in our church is always to maintain a clear bead on Jesus and his marvelous grace. We must not let that slip away from us. And we have a unique opportunity this morning in the book of Revelation chapter 7 to keep that bead on Jesus, to keep our eyes on him and to be reminded in this text of the ultimate kingdom to which we are going and what that kingdom will be like because Jesus has been gracious and is being gracious to us right now. What are the characteristics of that coming kingdom, of that future place which John has received a revelation of and he's declaring it to us here in the pages of scripture How do we characterize that place? How are we to think about that place in these moments when things are hard, when things are sad, when things are sinful, and we need to be looking forward for hope in the present because of what is coming in the future? What is that future kingdom characterized by? I want us to see three this morning. Three important reminders. Of course, these are never exhaustive. We're never going to exhaust the characteristics of of God's coming kingdom and the ultimate final redemption that he's planned for us. But we want to keep a beat on Jesus and his grace. And this morning we do that by noticing three characteristics in this vision of the coming kingdom. What I'd like to do, because we're going to actually work through about nine verses, is go ahead and read those verses aloud for us and then work our way back through them as we see these three characteristics and take them away Uh, that God would use them in our hearts. Listen to this starting in verse nine of Revelation chapter seven. After these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all the tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders responded, saying to me, These who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will no longer hunger nor thirst, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life. 
and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Let's pray once more and ask God to bless this time that we spend looking at his word. Father, this morning we come to you again knowing our incredible dependence upon you. We need your grace. We, we ask that you would be gracious again to us now in this moment. In this moment of truth, please give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that for all of us, for me even who is preaching and those who are hearing, that in ways in which we need to be made uncomfortable, that you would make us uncomfortable, and in ways that we need to be comforted, that you would comfort us with your words this morning. We look forward to the coming kingdom that you have planned for us by your grace, and we pray that as we set our hearts and minds upon it, it will help us in these days, in this world, looking forward to the world to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first characteristic that I'd like for us to see this morning about this coming kingdom to which we are going, if we persevere to the end by faith in Christ, is that we are going to a kingdom that is globally filled. Listen to the kind of vision that John received here, even in this part of his vision, what he saw. He says in verse 9, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. John saw not only a great multitude, but a multitude which could not even be counted. Have you ever been in a large group of people and then for one reason or another decided that you wanted to count them? Either to see how many there would be because you were so amazed or, or for some other reason. My family just returned from a few days at Disney, and it really was a great time. But if I'm completely honest with you, I shouldn't say that we went to Disney. I should say that we stood in line at Disney because that's most of what we did. We stood in line at Disney for three days with all of these other people. And even then, it wasn't all that busy. But one of the things I found myself doing in every line as we waited for roller coasters and other experiences and small world after all, which my daughter decided was a disturbing world after all, that I found myself counting. The reason was because I wanted to know how soon I could get to the front of the line because they have the lightning lane. You pay a little extra, you go around the side and you go past all of the ordinary people who are just standing in line and they let a bunch of lightning lane people through and then a few of the normal people and then a lot of lightning people. And you wonder how long is this going to take? So you start counting heads. And I found it so interesting to me that even in that situation, not even in a great multitude. It's not even a multitude. I couldn't count them. But here, this is one of the ways that God has described the coming kingdom. What will set it apart from other groups? While I'm sitting counting two by two by two by two by two, 40, it'll be an hour and a half. When you look at the coming kingdom, when you are there, it will be a multitude of people far greater than anyone could count. He calls it a great multitude. The Greek words that he's using seems to communicate something that seems like a sea of people. It's the kind of picture of looking out at the ocean, and it's a sea of people that doesn't have any real order to it. It is so vast and it is so diverse that you can't really make sense of the parts very easily. 
You can't count out all of the people. It's like looking at, at the ocean and seeing all of the waves crashing back and forth against each other in a storm. It's one big swirling sea, but this is a sea of souls. This is a sea of people swirling in God's kingdom. That's an amazing thought. That's an amazing anticipation of what that will be like if you think Disney is busy. Wait till you see the coming kingdom. That right there alone is all we need to grasp the magnitude of the grace of God. That by His grace, He has filled His kingdom not with a small multitude, not with a small crowd, not with a waiting line, but with a great multitude that cannot even be counted. But I don't think that is even what's most marvelous about this group of people. I don't think that it's the size that's the marvel, but it's the fact of where they have come from. It's what they look like. It's what they sound like. It's what they dress like. It's what they act like. It's how they think. Because you notice in this text that it's not just a great multitude, but listen to this. It is a great multitude from every nation. And all the tribes, peoples, and languages, this multitude is not a multitude of people who look alike and dress alike and talk alike and do their hair alike and like the same things, and go to the same places. It is an enormous diversity of people from all over the world. That's why the first characteristic we're noticing is that this coming kingdom is globally filled. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the only person who can and who will bring the world together. And he will do it around himself. Nations, tribes, peoples, languages. This is biblical code for global diversity. What is contained in those words? It's those things, cultures. There will be a diversity of cultures, a diversity, contrary to what many people think, a diversity of politics, diversity of personalities, of backgrounds and skin colors and all of the rest. In other words, what we know is this, the coming kingdom will be filled with a great multitude of all kinds of people. Jesus is and will do something far more incredible than saving every person in the world. We know that he won't. We know that because scripture tells us that it is not God's will that every person be saved to the uttermost. It is his will that all kinds of people, not without exception, but without distinction, will be saved. And this is what exalts his glory and his grace by saving all kinds of people without distinction. I think that almost anyone can bring a group of people together. 
But here something special is needed to bring the world together. In my lifetime, I have not seen anything bring the world together like COVID-19. To see the way that the entire world banded together in a way around one central point is an amazing thing to see. That doesn't happen very often. It doesn't even happen in a lifetime. But what we see here in the coming kingdom is something far more incredible. People not coming around a disease or a political view or a flag, but coming around a person. Only Jesus can do that. Listen to what John goes on to say and how they are brought together. What are they doing? They're from every nation and all the tribes and the peoples and the languages, and they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Their reference point is Jesus. No one can do this. No one can bring all different kinds of people together around himself or herself, only Jesus. And he does this by clothing them. He, he does this not simply by gathering them together like cattle in a fence. He's done this by bringing them to himself. Notice it says that they're clothed in white robes. This says something about their essential character, their righteousness. How has he brought the world together in the coming kingdom? He's done it by giving them something that belongs to him. He gives them his righteousness. Notice also that they're holding palm branches in their hands. This throughout scripture is a symbol of victory of a king who is rallying his people. The palm branches are signifying his ultimate victory and their victory in him. But then notice in verse 10, these people are not just standing. They're not just waving. They're not just clothed. They are crying out. In fact, your Bible might have a little asterisk next to the word cried because the translators felt that it made a little more sense. It was easier to read to just place that in the past tense, something that they were doing in the vision. But rather what it means is that they're doing this perpetually, constantly. They are crying out constantly with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They know why they are there. And in incredible humility, they are rallied around this person who has given them what they could not get on their own. Righteousness, belonging, family in his kingdom. This is all of grace. There's no one in this group of people that gets a pat on the back. There's no one that says, I sure am glad I was smart enough to respond to that preacher when he told me I should come to Christ. Whew, I barely got in. I figured it out just in time. No one in the group will say that. They don't say, salvation belongs to us and we who stand around the throne. They say, salvation belongs to our God who saves us, and he does it by grace. 
The first way that we should apply this to our lives in this present moment, in our daily lives, is this, guard. You and I should guard our hearts against becoming desensitized to the grace of God in our salvation. It's the weirdest thing that that could ever happen to people who have been so radically transformed, but it happens, it happens every day. Every day you live and I live underestimating the grace of God, either the past grace of God that he's shown us or the present grace of God that he is showing us or the future grace that he has promised us. And therefore it calls us to be diligently guarding our hearts against that by continually feeding together. This is why church membership and participation is essential to the Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life. I cannot live it without consistent fellowship with the same believers in relationship to one another because this is the way that we feed on grace. And it keeps us from becoming desensitized to it where it becomes a small thing that God would save us. We want to keep it as a big thing. Well, notice next that not only were these people, which last week we saw were sealed with the seal of God, standing before the throne and worshiping, but there's somebody else there. This vision keeps getting bigger and more diverse and more incredible as we read verse after verse after verse, because now we find that in addition to people who have been saved, there are angels and there are elders and there are four living creatures, which we've read about already in the Revelation. Talk about working a room. Jesus has this room of his kingdom packed with all different kinds of people and beings with him at the very center. Notice what they're doing. They, of course, are worshiping. This is the second characteristic that we want to keep in our minds as we look forward to that day. This is one of the hardest for me, is that heaven is worship-centered. It's not that I have a hard time grasping that heaven is a place of worship. I have a hard time grasping the way the Bible talks about that place. There seems to be a kind of distance between my heart and that picture of what that would be like. What will it be like to be rallied around the Lord Jesus Christ and to be continually focused on one reference point, pouring out your heart constantly over and over again, sort of chanting and praying and proclaiming the same things over and over and over again, I really struggle to get a grip on that. Singing and worshiping forever? But it's passages like this that help my heart, maybe yours, get just a little closer a little better taste of what that will be like. Look at what they're doing, standing around the throne. Verse 11, all of the angels, he kind of just adds that in. It's a natural part of what's going on in this kingdom. It's just thrown in there. All of the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And then... They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. They're captivated. 
This is what the future vision, the future kingdom will be like. This is the answer. How could you sustain such worship and singing and proclaiming constantly all the time? Because when you think about doing that here, you know that you can't. You can't. There's nothing here ultimately that will captivate us and keep us in this room for days, even hours. We have to sit down. We have to leave. We have to rest. We have other things to do, other things on our minds. But in this coming kingdom, how is this happening? It's because it's a different kind of place. These people are captivated. That's how they're able to worship constantly, endlessly. And they fall on their faces before the throne. Now listen to them again in what they say. Verse 12, saying... Amen. You'll notice that this word amen, which is a kind of affirmation of something to, to be, let it be, let it be so, is actually a bookend of what they're saying. Notice in verse 12 that at the beginning of the quote, it says amen. And at the end of the quote, it says amen. There is a declaration of may it be at the beginning and a declaration of may it continue to be at the end. These are the words of captivated hearts. These are the words of people who don't need a break. They don't need a rest. Their minds don't go somewhere else. In fact, what has happened is the glory and the grace of God in the coming kingdom has hemmed them in on both sides. And as far as they're concerned, they have nowhere else to be. Their minds have nowhere else to be, unlike ours. And that's not a slight on us. That's just the reality. That's the way I am here. I'm preaching to you and every now and then something else comes into my mind. It's kind of weird. Need to take the trash out later. Or what are we going to eat for lunch? It pops into our minds. It's because we're not quite hemmed in yet. We're not quite captivated yet. That, of course, can be a real danger for us because if we drift far outside the circle of safety and keeping our eyes on Christ, who knows where we'll be? But here in this place, there is no drifting. There's no distraction. There's no trash to take out. There's no concern about lunch. The main and only concern is Christ because he is at the center and they are captivated. And that's why they say, amen. Blessing. Glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. They say this over and over again. These words have incredible meaning. They're not just thrown in there, sprinkled in. They have meaning. The blessing and the glory and the wisdom. They're chanting in heaven. You will be chanting in heaven about God's wisdom you'll have a renewed kind of sense of the wisdom of God. You'll have access, I believe, to some things that we don't know now. We will not know everything. We won't have all the answers. We won't have exhaustive knowledge of God and his ways, but there will be more. And his wisdom will be at the forefront of our minds along with his glory. And because of what he's done for us, our hearts will be pouring out in thanksgiving. We'll be honoring him and we will be declaring his power in the world and his might, which belongs to him forever and ever. Now, we need that right now. I need that right now. I need more of this. I can't have all of it. That's not until later. 
but I need more of this. I need more hemming in with the amen to focus my heart on these things. Whether things are going really well or things are going really hard, I need this reminder that this is where I belong. I have been brought into the blessing and the glory and the wisdom and the thanksgiving and the honor and the power and the might of a God who will always be that way. He will not change. And I need my heart to say today, amen. Amen. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stay focused on Christ. That's really our goal this morning and every morning. That helps us a little. That helps me a little to understand how could this scene be real? How could I, with all of the distractions I feel now, how could I be there pouring out my heart constantly? How could we do that? It's an amazing thought. Placido Domingo, the opera star, once in 1991 in Vienna performed Otello, the opera. It's an epic love story with a kind of evil plot that captivates the imagination. And it is sung with such exuberance and glory and majesty that in 1991, when he finished this opera in Vienna, the audience set the record for the longest standing ovation in history. 80 minutes. 101 curtain calls. Placido Domingo coming back to the curtain 101 consecutive times. Now, when I see something like that, it gives me a little more hope. We can do something like that. If our hearts are so captivated, we can give an ovation like that. And that is what will happen. But we won't be captivated by Placido. We will be captivated by Christ. Someone who is endless in glory, endless in majesty, endless in beauty, endless in in excellence. And our hearts will give that ovation. Not for 80 minutes, but without minutes. There will be no counting of minutes. It will be for all eternity. And that makes the coming kingdom worship-centered. An elder here in this text, you'll notice in verse 13, asks John a question. He says, who are these people? It's a question that he knows the answer to. And so John says, you know who they are. And we find that they have come out of the tribulation. They've come out of this incredible season, time of of suffering and persecution and, and wrath in the world, which we have already read about in Revelation, a terrifying expectation of this hard time. And these who are singing have come out of it. You know, I think that that's actually a big part of the answer as to how these people and all people will give, who are there, will give an ovation for eternity to the Lord. It's because they know not only where they are, but they know where they have come from. They have in the wisdom that's been given to them in that time when all of the other distractions are taken away, not only a keen sense of where they are, they have a keen sense of where they came from. 
They have a keen sense of the incredible wrath of God which was hanging over them for their sin. They have a keen sense of the kind of, of, of treasonous people they were against the God of the universe. They have a keen sense of the real danger and suffering that they were enduring through the tribulation. And when they come out, their hearts explode with gratitude. Great sinners coming through a great trial of suffering. I want to take you to another passage just briefly in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 28 and then 29 through 31 because it gives us an opportunity to get just a little more sense of what that means. Perhaps what does it mean that they have come out of the tribulation? Well, your Bible declares to you, as it does to me, the perilous times that will come, some of which we have been reading about. Listen to this, though, in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28, about this, this coming future event, and then pair that with some wisdom as to why they would be so grateful when rescue comes, listen to verse 15, Matthew 24. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out of his house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those women who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Moreover, pray that when you flee, it may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will again. But if those days had not been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, he is, here is the Christ, or he's over there, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will provide great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance, so that if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, do not go out, or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Think about those perilous times. And then it's paired right next to the next few verses in verse 29 about Jesus' glorious return. And it just gives us another little sense of how the standing ovation for eternity could happen by people who know where they have come from and they know where they are and they know to whom they belong. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels from a, with a great trumpet blast and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And this will be their rescue. When we put it that way, it is no wonder that they worship God saying, Amen, blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power and might belong to our God forever and ever. Amen.
These people have been rescued from the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Second application, and then we see the last characteristic for this morning. We must then build, I think now, a habit of ovation. Think about that in your life for a moment. How you can begin or continue if you've started to build a habit of ovation to Christ in your personal life. That you, would, that you would intentionally give time reflecting upon his greatness and his goodness and his grace to you and that it would cause you to give him an ovation of praise, that you would glorify him and that you would sing out to him because of what he has done for you. So often my life and my prayers get so caught up in just the, the list of things that I want or need or I'm worried about or concerned about. So seldom, so seldom does my heart really sing out It's something that I have to do intentionally. It's something probably that you have to do intentionally. So let's build a habit of this. Don't let time go by without singing out because of what God has done for you. And I believe that this habit may even help us. It may even help us in the days to come. If things get harder, more grievous, more challenging, more uncertain, This habit can carry us and help us. Finally, we can see this more clearly as we notice one other hopeful expectation of our future with Christ. It's not only that the kingdom is globally filled, as amazing as that is. It's not only that it's worship-centered where everyone, all different kinds of people and angels and the elders and the four living creatures are all there around Christ, around God, glorifying him. But finally, notice that this kingdom is a kingdom where satisfaction is guaranteed. John Newton, who was known for writing the hymn Amazing Grace, said this. He said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Well, then more recently, another John has made it even more clearer to us why these people do what they do. They're great sinners who have a great Savior. This John says, for this reason, for this reason, because they've come out of the tribulation and they have been protected and clothed and cared for and shepherded, for this reason, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will no longer hunger nor thirst, nor will the sun be down on them, nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This king that we see in Revelation and throughout scriptures who we know to be the Lord himself is not only a great savior, He is the great satisfier. This is some sweet language of ultimate protection and care in verse 15. Listen to that, those words, this picture. He will spread his tabernacle over them. The tabernacle is a dwelling place. He will spread his dwelling place over them over them. This is a picture of covering, of protection, of a home, of far more 
Even going on, they will be fed, they will be nursed, they will be spared the scorching heat. He even, with his divine hand, as a perfect father, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a beautiful picture. This is the picture I need in these moments to think about what's to come. It does not say simply, and there will be an end to their tears. As though they get to heaven, the tears are gone, they just magically dry up. That's not what it says. What does it say? He, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There can be nothing more personal. There can be nothing more comforting than for the Lord himself to reach down to your face and wipe the tears from your eyes. That is what it means when he spreads his tabernacle over you. He will care for you. I read just the other day about Janessa, speaking of our crisis pregnancy center offering that we're wanting to take up. Janessa is now 21, but as a newborn, her mother, for some reason, it's unknown, abandoned her on the steps or on the front door of the ER. Still had blood in her hair. There she was lying on the floor of the ER in Mississippi 21 years ago. And then one of the supervisors of the ER spoke with one of the other nurses and said, you have to take this baby. And I don't know how all of that works, but I do know this. That's exactly what Sarah did. She took Janessa home and took her into her home and became her daughter and raised her. That is the kind of picture that you're getting here of what Jesus Christ does for his people. Even coming through the tribulation when he spreads his tabernacle, that is what Sarah did for Janessa. That little baby would have died in the scorching heat without food, thirsty, crying. But that is what Sarah did. Spread her tabernacle over her. John's ultimate focus, though, is on this lamb who is the shepherd, who guides them to springs of the water of life and wipes every tear away from their eyes. Here is the key transition. This is your future. It's so easy for this to get disconnected, right? Where this is fantastic. Wow, what amazing thing. These people, look at what they're going through. He's wiping every tear away from their eyes. Well, that's great. But that's you. If you're in Christ and you persevere to the end, this is you. He will do this for you. It is an amazing thought that this is your future. Some of you here are really, really, really suffering. Some of you are really hurting. Some of you are going through a tribulation that others, they know nothing about that. And this is you. This is where you will be. So stay close to Christ because in him, our satisfaction is guaranteed. Now here's the hard part. This is our future, but it is not our present. That's a hard reality. It is not our present. What we know from scripture in our experience is that the people of God, though we look forward to the coming kingdom of final redemption, we do not get closure here. 
None of us have. Going back in redemptive history, none of us have. No one has gotten closure in this life. Therefore, we have to be patient. We need visions like this. We need reminders like this so that we can be patient because none of us have gotten to think back about redemptive history. Moses died without reaching the promised land. David certainly didn't see the fulfillment of his ultimate hopes, not in this life. Fast forward to those who, who followed Christ and heralded his coming and his coming again, and they were so anticipating of his imminent return, and yet they didn't get closure in this life. Paul was beheaded by Nero. Peter, crucified, maybe upside down. Jude, crucified at Edessa. Bartholomew, translated Matthew into the languages of India, cruelly beaten and crucified. Luke, after traveling with Paul, hanged on an olive tree in Greece. Simon, crucified. Andrew, crucified. Thomas, speared by four soldiers while preaching in India. John, boiled in oil and then exiled to the island of Patmos. Even Jesus did not get closure in this life, but looked forward to the future day to close out his redemptive work. That is all the more reason why we need these visions. The scripture gives to us to remind us of where we're going and the hope that we have even in this moment because this is not our present. So what do we need to do? We need to allow every ray of the scorching sun and every pang of hunger and thirst, every slight and sin and season of suffering to cause us to long more for the day of ultimate and final redemption because it is there where ultimate satisfaction is guaranteed. That is the day of ultimate closure. And that is enough. That is enough to carry us through this life. We do it with joy, with incredible gladness because we know, we know where we are going. We know what this kingdom will be like. Let's pray. Father, we need your reminders in your word to be sown into our lives. We need to be reminded that you are in control and that you care for us even when things are spinning out of control and the world seems to be shaking and quaking under the curse of sin. And so we pray that you would comfort us with these words, that you would remind us of your ultimate, final, redemptive plan where our hearts will be satisfied once and for all. We look forward to a kingdom that is globally filled. May that change the way that we love and care for other people in this world, the way that we see them. We pray for your help in this. We also look forward, though dimly, to what it will be like in heaven to worship you forever. Prepare our hearts, build in us a habit of ovation to you for your goodness to us. We pray that we'll start even now as we sing to you yet again. I pray for those who may be listening and need to come to Christ. I pray that they will reach out and that we will have opportunities to talk with them more. And I pray that for those who are ready, they will come to Christ today and let us know of that decision to commit their lives to you because you are the one who has all grace for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.